Welcome back to CityPod, the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 2, which continues our topic about religious change. Today, you'll hear from our special guest, Joel Robbins, the Sigrid Rousing Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Cambridge. Thanks, Joel, for meeting with me today to do this podcast. I'm going to ask a few questions and give you a few prompts to talk about this project dedicated to understanding uh, rapid religious change. To open up, could you briefly just sketch out what drew you to thinking about cultural change in the first place? Well, I came to think about cultural change initially in a kind of classically anthropological way, that is, out of a fieldwork experience. I carried out fieldwork with a group of people in Papua New Guinea, language group known as the Uratmin, who had in the late 70s experienced a very dramatic and rapid conversion to Christianity. They'd never really been directly missionized. They were converted in a revival movement that swept through a lot of Melanesia being carried from place to place by local people. And in the space of, as they tell it, a year, the Uratmin community became unanimously charismatic Christian and had made Christian living their main collective and, for most people, personal project. That that all happened in 1977. I arrived there right at the end of um, 1990 and was being told over and over and over again by Eurotman how radically their life had changed and came to understand through living with them and doing field work over a pretty long period of time that, in fact, they looked nothing like, well, not nothing like, but Certainly their religious lives had profoundly changed. This wasn't just a rhetoric. Many, many different things about their lives were different. I can give you one example if that's helpful, but this was a society in which it used to be understood that men and women's contact with one another had to be very, very carefully managed. So uh, women lived with children in what were called women's houses, which sort of formed a horseshoe and then the men of a village would live in a men's house in the center. There were also men's paths and women's paths, all, paths all through the forest and between the different communities in Yorotman, and all kinds of eating were regulated by taboos that kept men and women separate. They had to eat different things. They couldn't touch certain things that one another ate, et cetera, et cetera. By the time I got there in early 1990, all of that kind of gender segregation was gone because, as Yorotman understood it, the Christian God didn't want men and women to be separate in that way and, and also wanted everybody to eat everything and enjoy his bounty, as they put it, or what God gave them. And so everybody ate everything. Men and women lived together in what used to be women's houses. The men's houses were gone. There were only single trails through the community. That's just an example of the kind of things that as a social scientist, before you even get into how people are thinking or the depths of their understandings, it was very clear that things had changed dramatically in 13 years. And, you know, we had anthropological studies of their neighbors before this Christian conversion, and life there was just like the Eurotman described how their life used to be. 
So I ended up working with a group of people who both had changed radically in ways that you could pick up as a researcher and who understood themselves, which is pretty important to have changed radically. Their self-conception and their narration of their own history was that they had been through a radical religious change. And that's what got me started in my interest on this subject of rapid religious change. Could you tell me a little bit about the story of your need to convince your committee members that the Yeratman had changed religiously? Yeah. Because that's, I think, a significant part of how this openness to the anthropology of Christianity began and that type of thing. Could you just yeah. walk us through that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just a matter of the members of my own doctoral committee, mm -hmm. although they were certainly, they, they were part of this. They represent a very common anthropological attitude at that time, which is sort of the second half of the story of my interest. So I come home from this field work to just, to, I mean, I guess I would have known this, but I hadn't, it went unspoken, so I wasn't even aware of it, but that uh, most of anthropology didn't have space for this kind of radical change. The most convincing anthropological arguments, the ones that you would get most credit for, were ones that showed how, even though it looked like people may have changed, let's say religiously, given the subject of this discussion, that they had, say, become Christian or had become Muslim, or the most respected anthropological interpretations were one that showed how underneath any sort of surface trappings of religious change, people were still very much being themselves. They had indigenized the religion, one of the key terms here was syncretism. There's all kinds of imagery associated with this, that like the new religion is a thin veneer over the top of the real religion, or the notion that, well, people tried to appear to have changed religions to get certain kinds of material benefits, you know, that they were mere missionaries who would give them food or allow them to work at mission stations if they would appear. On, doing air quotes there, you can't see them on the recorder, that they would appear to have changed their religion or that the government would leave them alone or, you know, these are called rice Christian arguments often, that that was really the going understanding. And there was a deep resistance to the idea that people really could change this abruptly. In fact, it was sort of a challenge to the way anthropologists understood the importance of what they studied, which in America at that time was culture. But if culture could change that dramatically, then was it worth all the time we put into studying it? If it was just evanescent, you know, if it could just come and go. So people weren't terrifically interested in hearing about Christianity in places like Papua New Guinea. But more than that, it didn't seem like a credible argument to say people had learned in a kind of detailed, complex way parts of a new religious tradition and were living in terms of it. I mean, I was going to need to talk about rapid religious change anyway to make something of my fieldwork. But then the fact that there was so much resistance to talking about it led to an effort to really theorize, A, how people can change like that, and then B, what that tells us about the possibility of studying Christianity anthropologically, which is sort of another topic, but you mentioned it in your question. Oh, very good. So in that... Um can you explain how the terms uh, rupture and discontinuity began to emerge as a new way of understanding what religions could do? Yeah, I've tried to think about this a bit lately. We might get into this later 
in the discussion, those terms were meant to capture what particularly Pentecostal converts talk about, or at least the people I work with, charismatic Pentecostal and often evangelical converts, talk about changing their lives, about new lives, about radical transformations. And the terms discontinuity and rupture were meant to capture that. That said, those weren't the terms the Eratman people themselves were using. And I happened upon a small book by accident by, I think, a historical theologian called something like Discontinuity and Continuity in Christian Tradition. And it was a very short book. I think it had maybe been a couple of lectures in, in some kind of lecture series. So I found it, I sat down and read it, and it was about debates within the Christian tradition about its difference from Judaism. At what point did it recognize itself as a new religion? When did it come to have a self-conscious sense of discontinuity with what had come before? And I think I got the pair, continuity and discontinuity, from her. And I'm not sure where the term rupture entered my vocabulary, but these were all attempts to find terms that were distinct or that were clearly distinct from what I thought were key anthropological terms like reproduction, tradition, continuity itself, maybe not such a term, but equilibrium, you know, going back to structural functionalism. I wanted a kind of language that was really distinct from all of that. And discontinuity and rupture felt like they made that point very clearly. And they did resonate with the kinds of things that Rotman, but also many other people who were converting to evangelical forms of Christianity from non-Christian traditions said about what was going on in their lives. Well, I, I find one of the things that's very interesting about the term rupture is how, in a sense, your work and the work of some others was creating a rupture within anthropology. Yeah. Uh, to, to rethink yeah. Yeah. some things. You've outlined kind of a cultural moment for us that uh, rupture and discontinuity and your field work all came together and rose up. More recently, you've been using the term interruptions in some of your latest lectures and writing. Can you explain where that term comes from and maybe even what hopes you have for that term? For that term, yeah. I um. So I have another project, which is not unrelated to the broad project under which we're having this conversation, but is not exactly the subject of this particular discussion, in the relationship of, of anthropology to theology. And I've picked up the term interruption from theologians. The very well-known German political theologian, Johann Baptist Metz, has an aphorism that's pretty well-known in some circles, which is interruption dash the shortest definition of religion. Um, but there's also a Catholic theologian who I think is fairly influential of a younger generation, Levin Beuve from Belgium, who talks a lot about interruption. And then finally, I found my way to a very well-known German theologian, Eberhard Jungel, who makes interruption very central to his theology. Now, as I understand it, certainly for Jungel, and I'm kind of guessing even Metz and Bouva, though they're in the Catholic tradition and would be, but a lot of this notion of interruption really comes from Barth's very strong stress on the distinction between God and humanity or God and God's creation such that God always does appear as an interruption. 
and there's a strong stress on the, the distinction between those two. So I think, as far as I can tell, all of 20th century theology is, 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 is inheriting Barth. But anyway, certainly, I think Metz is and Jungle is, and I would assume Buddha also. Um, but so I found it from theology. What I have appreciated about what the theologians do, in a sense, as I've already said, discontinuity and rupture were meant to be maximally contrasting with any notion of continuity, any notion of simple reproduction. Interruption is a slightly less strongly contrastive term in that often things that are interrupted pick back up again. So it includes rupture, but then sort of also raises the question of, well, what comes after? And what happens with what was ruptured from? And not just Jungel, but people like Moltmann and, and I guess Metz himself have a real interest in how Christian interruptions both make the new and then use the new, the standpoint of what's new, to evaluate the past, discard some of it, but also reconfigure some of it on the other side of the interruption. So I feel like interruption although less theoretically pointed, I mean, I still think rupture and discontinuity have work to do to continue to help wean us from this sense that people don't change and societies don't change. But I think interruption is a helpful corrective to the way that rupture places all the emphasis on the break and doesn't leave a whole lot of room for what people do when they look back on the other side of a change with what they've left behind and how some of that may get reconfigured, picked up, and used. So some of our listeners may be very surprised that a world-renowned Cambridge anthropologist is talking so fluidly and fluently with theology. I've got one more question about cultural change, so we're going to keep on topic. But could you just relieve the minds of, of the listeners or help explain how you came to start using theology and reading theology to help inform maybe some of your own work? Yeah. I mean, let's start by saying that Clyde Cluckone, who was a very important mid-20th century American anthropologist, he's perhaps not one of the ones who's still a household name, but, but in his time, he was a very major figure, part of the social relations department at Harvard that did train many of the people who would be the late 20th century leaders of the discipline, like Geertz and Schneider. And Cluckhorn once said anthropology is an intellectual poaching license. You know, it lets you go anywhere you want to go intellectually and take what you want to take and then bring it back and test it out in terms of its ability to understand the lives people lead, which is what we study ethnographically. I know from the very beginning I was very drawn to anthropology in part for its theoretical eclecticness. It's unified by its method in a sense, but it is quite open in terms of where it gets its theoretical inspiration. Certainly I was trained just at the end of the heyday of structuralism and we spent a lot of time learning about linguistics. And around that same time, this is in the 80s, early 90s, we were learning a lot from the discipline of history. And, and certainly anthropologists all along have read philosophy. Some people find that that's too bad or unfortunate and some people get excited but it's gone on the whole time. 
So I was always attracted to that side of anthropology, that we were sort of unified by our ethnographic method and our and a certain deep commitment to Naomi Quinn, who recently passed away, you say anthropologists are naturalists, you know, that we go out and we find out about people and by living with them and and being engaged with them. So that's always there, but intellectually we can we can poach. I was involved with a number of other people a while ago and now with many people in the in studying Christianity anthropologically. One of the questions that raised is, well, what can we learn from theology? And there's a couple of different ways to approach that. Certainly many people found that they had to learn some theology to understand what some of the issues the people they were studying were concerned with or why they became issues or how they became issues. There was sort of just generally being informed about Christianity seemed like a good thing. Theology was a place to go for that. But with this background of being interested in how anthropology opens you to learning from other disciplines, I had always wanted to push a little further to try to engage anthropology as an intellectual enterprise. And, you know, I don't know how deeply we want to go into this, but anthropology has gone through a period recently that these names mean different things to different people, but the term ethnographic theory or the ontological term are about taking our concepts from the people we study and then using them to make what we think of as very general theoretical claims. And I think that's a very strong move in anthropology. I myself would source it back to Louis Dumont wanting to develop what he called an Indian sociology as opposed to a sociology of India. So he wanted to take what he thought were Indian, well, what he claims are Indian ideas about hierarchy and value and make a social theory out of that. And that was been inherited by Marilyn Strathern largely through Roy Wagner, I think. I mean, Marilyn Strathern didn't really engage Dumont very much, but Roy Wagner did, and Marilyn and Strathern and Roy Wagner were major intellectual influences on each other, and this idea of developing a kind of Melanesian social theory with Melanesian ideas, what occurred to me that we also could try something like that with theology, that theologians had thought very deeply about the nature of humanity from a Christian point of view, what would it mean to borrow some of their concepts and try to make social theory from that place? I haven't been so self-conscious about this and have never said this until this moment, but probably fits in with some very general trends that people call post-secularism. Habermas's claim that, you know, that there are resources in religious language that maybe we can't glean from our own philosophical traditions as they're divorced from religion, and so we might want to go there. So, I mean, maybe this is also in keeping with some broader moves, but for me anyway, it fits with this notion anthropologically that we ought to be able to take our concepts from anywhere and make use of them. And since I'm interested in the Christian tradition, I'll go there. That's where I have enough grounding to read these very serious texts and learn from them. So I'm not saying that's the only place people should go. I get asked that a lot. You can go almost anywhere to look for good concepts for anthropological theory building. This happens to be where I was interested in going. So that's what I've been working on with that project. All right. Well, thank you for walking us through that a bit. So I want to end our discussion today with asking you a very broad question that you can 
uh, relate to your own field work or things you've been reading or just your general knowledge of how religious beliefs and behavior changes. But why would you say religious beliefs and behaviors at times change very quickly and what kinds of societal impacts do these changes have? Yeah, my answer to that question would be yes. <laughs> I was kidding. Um, I don't know that we're far enough along in studying rapid religious change to give one answer to that question. So let me just muse for a few moments on some different distinctions that might be helpful in ways of approaching things. I know I want to make at least two points. We'll, we'll see. You can stop me if it goes beyond that. And one of them is... In the study of social change and cultural change more generally, if you look at what the literatures have been about that in the social sciences, there's a big divide between theories that assume change happens because of a kind of big impact from outside the social system and those that think that dynamics within the social system lead to change. So the most famous case of the latter, that, that it's sometimes people call this endogenous change, that it's happening from inside is Marxism, right, which argues that there are contradictions, at least in the capitalist system, that will lead it to transform itself radically over time. Equally popular, at least equally popular, are ideas that what really changes societies is what in Australian history was called fatal impact. This sort of, you know, a jarring jolt from the outside. Defeat in war, being colonized, natural disasters, things that come from outside the social system and disrupt it. We can translate that very interestingly into a question specifically about religion in the following way. I'm going to change the term slightly, so I'm not... It, this borrows on the endogenous, exogenous distinction, but it really isn't quite the same. And that is that I think sometimes religions are where we find people trying to work out ways of understanding changes that have already happened elsewhere in their life. The anthropologist Tim Jenkins, borrowing from Edwin Ardner, uh, talks about the prophetic voice, and he makes a really crucial distinction, I think, between prediction and prophecy. Prediction is all about the future, but it also assumes a stable world. The world tomorrow will be a lot like it is today, and given that we see that there's rain 200 miles away and the wind's blowing in the right direction, we can predict it'll rain here tomorrow. Prophecy, Jenkins says at least, I mean, I think he's drawing from Ardner, but I know it through Jenkins better, says prophecy is actually always about the present. And how he defines prophecy is it's a kind of speech made in the present when the world has somehow changed and you're trying to catch your understandings up with the world you're now living in. And I think that often radical religious change is like that. Something's changed in the world, and religion, which is, I think, a very privileged place for careful human thought, I think it's that way in a lot of societies, religion becomes the place where people try to work out new concepts, new understandings that fit their changed lives. So if you look at just Protestant theology today, which I know more about than Catholic theology, enormous amount of work to try to understand the kind of neoliberal world that we're living in, right? And this is religion trying to change, to give us categories to understand lives that have already changed, right? Families that are no longer, say, eating their meals together. So I think one way religions change 
is when they take on this prophetic role in this sense that Tim Jenkins has of trying to help us work out new categories to catch up changes that are already happening. That would be the kind of exogenous change would be the kind of analog, but something's already changed, but religion is where that kind of change comes to consciousness, gets worked out, gets understood, gets crucially often evaluated. You know, what will we put up with? What won't we put up with? A second kind of radical religious change is driven from within religion itself, where something about the logic of people's religion or contradictions within their religious understandings, I mean, I don't have a great example in mind right now, but they get worked through and something has to change to then make the religion make sense again, and then social life has to follow that. It's possible that sort of the missional church kind of thing, which you yourself have worked on, could be an example of that second kind of thing of people saying, it's not that the world had, well, I, I, know, I don't know, Newbigin might say the world had become pluralistic and we can work it out. But I think those are two logical possibilities that are worth tracking. Eurotman would definitely be a case where people's world changed in ways that they were not completely in control of. And then their religion became changed in order to give them a set of understandings. It would definitely be that other one. But then you could also track the way their religious understandings and the logic of those can push them beyond even where their social changes went. The other aspect of rapid religious change I wanted to talk about is I think there's a real difference between changes that people undertake themselves in light of some kind of idea about change they had or some kind of model of change that they had as opposed to those kind of changes which kind of just happen to them. And I want to take a moment to talk about the model of change because I think it's particularly important for certain kinds of rapid religious change. I'm in part inspired in making this point by an article by William Sewell that I think is called Inventing in the French Revolution. And his point is that as the French Revolution was developing, the word revolution didn't mean what it means to us today. It kind of meant to go around in a circle. <laughs> In fact, it wasn't about change, you know, it was about the same again, going around. And even at the storming of the Bastille, he says there was no notion of revolution. That was seen as a very common kind of popular, you know, popular way of opposing the government, of showing your displeasure. And I guess the General Assembly left amazing notes of all its process, and in the wake of the story of the Bastille, he looked through all those notes and discovered them starting to use the word revolution in a new way, starting to define it in a new way, until it finally came to have this meaning of a sort of legitimate overthrow of the current political system, which it had never meant before. And then he says they look back at the storming of the Bastille as that key moment of a revolution, and then going forward that model is part of what they're acting in light of, and that that decisively shapes the process. So instead of being a normal kind of political process of the government does something we don't like, we push back, we protest, it became a revolution where we're going to overthrow the government and change everything, and that's a legitimate use of our, the people's power. 
So that would be a type case of people coming to have a model of change and that itself driving a kind of radical change. I think at least Christianity, certainly in places like Papua New Guinea where I worked, and certainly the kinds of evangelical religion I'm most familiar with, arrives as a model of change like that. Christianity has a lot to say about change. I mean, particularly in the evangelical tradition, change in individual people's lives, but also about how you build churches, how you organize social life to reflect that change. And I think part of why Christianity, at least, is very often a driver of radical, this loops back to our conversation about rupture and discontinuity. One of the reasons that Christianity is such an effective and common ingredient in rapid religious change is that along with all the other aspects of a religion, whatever religion, however you want to define a religion, you know, it has a moral aspect, a soteriological aspect, et cetera, et cetera, it also has a model of change. And that to inject that into a social situation is itself a very effective cause of change. Because once people are acting with a model of change in mind, it makes processes of change take on a kind of momentum that it's probably hard to develop without them. Things can change without them, but people aren't so participatory and they're not so much the drivers of it as they are when they have a notion of change in mind and an understanding of what it would mean to change things. That's very helpful and in thinking about my own research with the missional church movement, one of the things that missional church pastors and proponents utilized was an expectation of change within culture to say we need to move this way or that way. Um, so kind of seizing on that expectation, which yes. I guess, which is an option. Right, having an understanding that it's possible to change a culture immediately transforms your own relationship mm -hmm. to that culture in a way that makes change, certain kinds of change possible that might not have been possible before. Thanks to our guests who joined us for this episode. And thanks to all our listeners. Please share the link in this podcast to your friends, family, and colleagues. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology, at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. CityPod is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and funded by the John Templeton Foundation. Special thanks to Lily Baldwin for her editorial work. <laughs>